Isaiah chapter 45, Isaiah chapter 45 as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah on through the Old Testament. The title tonight is Cyrus, an instrument of God, Cyrus, an instrument of God. Just like prophets, priests and kings were anointed for service, so was Cyrus. He was anointed by God to perform his special service for Israel's sake. And in this sense, Cyrus was a Messiah, an anointed one. Because God called Cyrus by name. And God called him over 150 years before he was born. And Cyrus was the human instrument for the victories that God would give to Israel. Anyone who came against Cyrus was arguing with God. And that was like the clay ordering the potter or the child ordering their parents. God raised Cyrus up to to do his specific will and nothing would stop Cyrus from getting it done because God was backing him. And notice the emphasis on salvation in this chapter. The idols can't save Babylon because God is the savior of Israel. And he is a just God. He is a Savior. And he offers salvation to the whole world. So let's begin now with verse 1 of chapter 45. And it begins, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors that the gates will not be shut. In verse 1 here, Isaiah calls pagan Cyrus his anointed it literally means to be Messiah showing that he was appointed to an office that was usually given to a king and we see that in Isaiah 61 1 given this one of its kind and lofty title to this Persian king after it has been used in Israel for such prominent men like the patriarch David and and the coming Messiah Jesus Christ it must have shocked those that Isaiah was talking to he says a shepherd and anointed these were titles of the royal line of David and so does that mean that does that mean now that God is now passing those titles over to a Gentile conqueror now it might have seemed to be the the case it might have seemed to be that way to the Jews that God was just washing his hands of them that he was done with them and that he was overturning his whole moral universe over he was just you know getting rid of it God says to Cyrus here, notice in verse 1, I'm going to empower you to loose the armor of the kings, which means to make them unfit for battle. And he says, and to open the double doors, which were part of the gates that were connected with Babylon's defensive moat that was around the the gates. They were not shut when Cyrus captured Babylon. And Cyrus opened those gates and he said that the Israelites could walk out. They were free to go back to their homeland. And God says in verse 7 here, and this is, again, one of the things that we always have to keep in mind. God said, I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, why would God appoint a foreign pagan to carry out his will? Because God is sovereign. And God uses whoever he wants, however he wants, whatever ways he wants to carry out his purposes, whether we like them or not. God is not hindered or defeated by the difficulties brought about by man's doings. 
God is using them to carry out His redemptive plan so that even Cyrus can be a type of the true shepherd and Messiah, a type of Jesus Christ. Now, if God is sovereign, and that's not a question, He is sovereign, since God is sovereign, then all of history, not just church history, is His plan, it's His doing. Everything that happens has one basic cause. It fits into one great purpose. And those things find their meaning in the one final victory that will come. And that means we can't put God in a box. It means we can't think, of, uh, think one piece at a time, kind of like a puzzle. You know? And that's what God's whole redemptive plan is kind of like. It's like a puzzle. You get one piece and you go, what is this? But, you know, as time goes on, there's another piece and another piece. And when this whole redemptive plan comes together, then we'll see the whole picture. It means making room. Knowing God, as it said in verse 7 here, knowing God did all of these things, it means making room for the questionable and strange ways of God. And it's not smart to try and second-guess God. Because his ways and thoughts are way beyond what we could know or imagine or understand. And as Paul said in Romans, his ways are past finding out. And in trying to figure God out, we make God after our own image and we imagine that he thinks and he acts like we do. And we bring him down to our level. And we're wrong. No matter what happens to us in this life, the greatest thing that we can know is this. I, the Lord, do all of these things. Whatever God does, He takes us deeper and deeper into His love. And He asks us to trust Him enough to not be offended by what He does, but to follow Him. Job said it well in Job 13, 15, Though He slay me, yet I will trust Him. The psalmist said in Psalm 23, 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God has promised that his wonderful salvation is the future of the world. And he's shaping history in that direction. That's what Isaiah is saying in verses 1 through 7. God made his presence felt by handing the known world over to Cyrus. And in doing so, God is working out his plan. Now, God says this to Cyrus, notice in verses 2 through 3. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. He says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. Here God also promises to go before his anointed to fight and to win his battles by making, notice, the crooked places straight. He tells Cyrus, I'm going to go before you. This was the Lord's promise to Cyrus, like his promise to his people of old. Babylon had 100 gates of bronze. And gates of bronze were typical of the more wealthy cities. Iron bars would be used to keep these gates firmly closed and locked. He talks about the treasures of darkness here. This would be referring mostly to the piled up riches stored in dark dungeons. 
And this was often the wealth that the, uh, the, and the riches of conquered people, which included taxes paid to the king. Spiritually speaking, treasures of darkness would seem to indicate Satan's subjects who are bound in the darkness of sin and unbelief. Now, <clears throat> why would God again pick Cyrus to do this? The first reason for God doing this for Cyrus is to know that the God of Israel, who calls Cyrus by name, is the Lord. Look at verse 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. Verse 4 here gives us a second reason why God is using Cyrus. He says, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, his chosen one. God's leaders aren't chosen for their own sake. In other words, God doesn't choose them for them to do their own thing. He chooses them to do his will for the sake of his people. God, cho God chooses leaders, and they're just human instruments for accomplishing God's purposes, which have his honor and his people as their subjects. Verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me. Now, these words stress the fact that the one who has raised Cyrus up, which is God, and brought, him, and brought about his significant career is Yahweh, the only God. Yahweh also girds Cyrus, which means he strengthens him. He strengthens him, strengthens him personally and giving him royal honor so that he'll be victorious for Israel's sake. Verse 6 that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Now, here in verse 6, here's a third reason for why Cyrus is doing this. So that all men may know that there is no God beside Yahweh. So that they will know. He says here, people from the rising of the sun to its setting. This speaks of all people, all the inhabitants of the whole earth. No other person or object can compare to the holiness and the power of our living God, our living creator. He is sovereign over everything, over good and evil. All people are to have this knowledge, not just Cyrus. Verse 7, I form the light, God says, and create darkness. I make peace, notice, and I create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. God says that he is, he is the ruler over light and darkness, over peace and calamity. Now, our lives are affected with both kinds of experiences, peace and calamity, trials and tribulations. We need them. We need both peace and calamity in our life in order for us to grow spiritually. And that's why God allows tribulations in our life and, and calamity. No, it's not to destroy us. It's not to, to, to you know, knock us down and, and, and knock us out. It's to grow deeper in him. It's to learn about his, his goodness and his strength and his power and, and, and the promise of his word. And when, and when bad times come, you know what? Don't resent them. Don't get angry at God. But ask God, Lord, what can I learn from this refining experience to help me mature as a Christian? 
and to make me a better servant of God. John Calvin said this, hard times should never make us hardened people and adversity should never make us abrasive. In the book, ABC's of Wisdom, the author said this, when hard times come, be a student, not a victim. And we always come out the victim. Oh God, why, why did you do this to me? Oh Lord, get me out of this mess. Rather than being a student and saying, Lord, what can I get out of this experience? What is it you want me to learn? Teach me, God. And God doesn't allow darkness and calamity in our life and then blame somebody else for it. He creates the difficulties of human history. I mean, how could it otherwise, how could he otherwise be sovereign? You know, how could he be the sovereign of the universe if, if somebody else causes the calamities or, or, or it's not arranged, designed, or allowed by God? He wouldn't be sovereign. Now, Isaiah isn't saying that God sins. That's our expertise. <laughs> That's our problem. That's what we do. And never let anybody say, when they are tempted to give in to evil, that's God trying to mess me up. Why would God do that to me? Why did, why did God cause this in my life? James tells us that God cannot be tempted by what is evil. And God himself tempts no one with evil. He never puts evil in anyone's path. The temptation to give in to evil, it comes from us and only us. And we have no one to blame but our own evil eye and that seducing flare-up of our own lust and desires. When we entertain those temptations, and then we work them out in the flesh. But God's strategies include everything that happens as God pursues, pursues again His redemptive purpose for the world. And, and, and keep in mind, too, that evil is not outside of God's control. I mean, we look at this world, and we can see some tremendous evils in this world and think, man, God, this world's out of control. It's not out of God's control. It didn't get away from God. We hear people say, and, and we think it, too, evil is running rampant in our world today. God, where are you? He says, I'm still on the throne. I still have everything under control. Nothing has slipped through my fingers. But God uses evil without being defiled by it. So nothing, no matter how evil, changes God's intended outcome one little bit. Everything is going just as God has planned it from the beginning. Think of it. What was the most wicked and evil thing done in the history of man? Murdering his son, Jesus Christ. Murdering the, the, the son of God. By man's own murderous hands. And we're all responsible, past, present, and future. But Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Think about that. It was all a part of God's plan. In Acts 2.23, Peter said, Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It wasn't an accident. God didn't have to go to plan B when his son was crucified. That was the plan. His determined purpose and foreknowledge of God from the beginning, from the foundation of the world. When Peter said that, he wasn't excusing himself for denying Jesus. 
He was saying that the worst thing that we have ever done, God turned it into his foundation of salvation. Again, here in verse 7, he says, I, the Lord, do all these things. In Amos chapter 3, verse 6, it says, If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? The Lord said to Moses in Exodus 4.11, Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Deuteronomy 32.39, God says, I kill and I make alive. I wound and heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7.14, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. That's easy. But in the day of adversity, consider this. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. God has appointed both the joyful days and the adverse days. Good and bad is to be accepted as the ordering of God's perfect yet mysterious will. The very thing that we look at as a problem, or we look at as strange, or it's questionable to us, God sees it as His glory. Specifically, God takes responsibility for the dark moments of life. God is not the author of sin. He's not the author of evil. And all things are, are, you know, are the sorrows and the fruits of sin. But he turns everything around for a saving purpose. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He said that he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. You see, the world was condemned already because of sin. He says, I didn't send my son to, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He was sent because God saw we needed a Savior to save us from our sin. Verse 8. Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. If you are in Christ, that is a picture of what God promises to do for you. Verse 8 is a promise, if you're in Christ, of what God promises to do for you, to give you fresh, new life springing up out of the, the natural deadness that you, are without, you know, when you, that, that you are without His sovereign grace. Paul said in Romans 6, 9, death at one time had dominion over us. We're all walking dead outside of Christ. And we're not to insist on what we call miracles for God to prove himself to us. Because God will use all kinds of methods to do great things. And whatever his strategy might be at any given time, God looks at what he's doing and he rejoices in it, and we should too. We need to be happy that God is God because he's better qualified you know, for being God than you and I are. The reason that we're, we're bothered by, by God's providences, that is, the, the, the things that God does in our life, they can't be blamed on God. It's our own personal desires and demands on God. Verses 9 and 10. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? 
Or shall your handiwork say, he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? You know, God is not accountable to you and me. Hey, God, what are you doing? What are you making of my life? What's going on here? God's not a debtor to any man. He owes no one an explanation. Now, God isn't offended when we come to him honestly with our questions. Lord, what's happening in my life? But not demanding, Lord, what are you doing in my life? Can't you see what? No. He's not offended when we come honestly and lovingly with our questions. But he is offended when we blame him or accuse him of mishandling our lives. As if God has made a mistake. And it's not our place to sit and to judge God. And like I said before, you know, we're not... We're not called to understand what God does. We're called to trust and obey. Because we're nothing but clay in the potter's hand. But when we're dwelling on, just thinking on, upon how God has ruined my life or, or everything for us, what does he say? Well, he says in verse 10, Woe to that baby that's being born who screams to his father and mother, Why have you produced me? Can you do anything right after all? I used the, the Living Bible to, to express that verse. He says, Woe to that child, or to that baby who screams to his father and mother, Why have you produced me? Can't you do anything right at all? And God is saying, Look, I'm sorry you feel that way about me. But you won't let me be your God. You keep insisting that I should do things the way you want me to. But I want to be your God, not your genie. Granting all of your little wishes. I want you to be my people, not my judge and jury. How can you experience my love, God says, if you won't let me be your God? How can you know that, that, that God's promises will come to pass? All the promises that he gives us if you never go through any difficult times. Isaiah is too wise to suggest that faith in God is always easy. It is not. Think of the Jews. They had a wonderful past in the kingdom of Solomon. They were independent. They had a magnificent army and a whole lot more. They had been in control. But now their liberator from exile, the one who's going to, to, to set them free from captivity, is Cyrus, a pagan Gentile. And now they'll reoccupy their own land by his permission. And Cyrus will pay for the rebuilding of their temple. The dream is over, and it's, in a, and it's over in a humiliating way uh, as well. And you see, they had a hard time accepting what God was doing. And tonight, you know, if you're struggling in your own life, you're not alone. There's a lot of people tonight struggling in their life. There's probably more people struggling today than there ever, ever have been for a long time, just alone in these last two years. But sudden and unexpected surprises are just one of the things that God does. And we have to come to terms with that. 
The incarnation was a shock. God coming in the flesh was a shock. The virgin birth was a scandal. The cross was embarrassing. And God is too independent for faith in Him to always be easy. He knows what needs to be done. He knows how long we need to be in the fiery furnace. And and He knows when to turn up the heat and when to turn it down. His hand is always on the thermostat. The psalmist said in Psalm 115, verse 3, God is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases. So whatever you're struggling with tonight, God is saying to you exactly what he was saying to the Jews back then. He says, my plan is better than you think. It's always better than we think. Verses 11 and 12. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their host I have commanded. This is what he says in verse 11 through 12. The Lord says, the Holy One of Israel, your creator, he's saying, do you question me? Do you question what I do for my children? Do you give me orders about the work of my hands? He says, I'm the one who made the earth. I'm the one who created the people who live in it. He said, with my hands, I stretched out the heavens and all the stars are at my command. In one of the Psalms, he says that he knows the number of how many stars are and he knows them all by name. Think about that. And if the stars are that important to God, how much more important are you? Isaiah reminds Israel that her future is totally in God's hands and that he's the only one there to ask about it. He said, do you question me about my children? Do you give me direction when it comes to the work of my hands? Verse 13. He says, I have raised him up in righteousness, again speaking of Cyrus, and I will direct all of his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. He says, I've called this man Cyrus to do everything that I want him to do and to go wherever I send him. I will direct him. He'll restore my city and he will free my captive people without seeking a reward. Verses 14 through 17. Thus says the Lord. The labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains, and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in, uh, in you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation and you shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. The Lord says to his people, you will rule the Egyptians, the Ethiopians, the Sabaeans. They'll come to you with all of their merchandise and it will all be yours. 
They'll follow you as prisoners in chains. They'll fall to their knees in front of you and they'll say, God is with you and He is the only God. There is no other. Truly, O God of Israel, our Savior, you work in mysterious ways. All craftsmen who make idols will be humiliated. They'll all be disgraced together, but the Lord will save the people of Israel with eternal salvation. Throughout everlasting ages, they'll never again be humiliated and disgraced. Egypt, Cush, or Ethiopia, the Sabaeans were men of stature. They were tall. They will bow and they will pray to God of rede- uh, uh, the, the, to the God of redeemed Israel, recognizing He is matchless. There's none like Him. He's a, He's one of its kind deity verse 18 and 19 for thus says the lord who created the heaven now he's when he says for thus says the lord who created he's not asking a question like who created the heavens who is god he's stating a fact for thus says the lord who created the heavens who is god who formed the earth and made it who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 19, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. He says, I, the Lord, am God. I created the heavens, the earth, and I put everything in place. He says, I made the world to live in. Not a place to be empty chaos. He says, I am the Lord and there's no other. And he says, I publicly proclaim bold promises. He says, I don't tell obscurities in some dark corner. He says, I, I, I wouldn't have uh, told the people to seek me if they couldn't find me. He says, I, the Lord, speak only what is true and I declare only what is right. And Isaiah is sure that God has planned Israel's destiny. God's promises, hey, they're out in the open. He says, I didn't talk about them or, or mention them in some you know, obscure place in some little dark corner. He said, and my promises are for sure going to come to pass. Again, didn't speak his word in some dark, hidden place on the earth. That being true, why do we ever doubt him? We never have to be in doubt when we have a God of truth and righteousness. Verse 20 and 21. Assemble yourselves together and come, draw near together. You who have escaped from the nations, they have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and Savior. There is none besides me. So he's telling the people here, he says, you guys get together, gather together and you come. He says, all of you fugitives from the surrounding nations. He says, what fools you are to carry around your wooden idols and to pray to gods that can't save. He says, get together, consult together, and argue your case. Get together and decide what to say. Who made these things known so long ago? In other words, these things that God has talked about, these things that God spoke of, he said, who, who, 
Who made these things so long ago? What idol ever told you that these things would happen? He says, was it not I, the Lord? Because there's no other God like me. There's no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There's none but me. So God is challenging the nations here and their idols. He says, he's speaking to the fugitives of the nations and he's reminding them that wooden idols carried to battle, he says, they don't have any power to save. He says, why don't you guys get together, you have a meeting, and then prove what you, want, what you have to say. Who told you first? Who said it long ago? Wasn't it me, the eternal one? The faithful God, there is no other that can save. Verse 22 and 23. He says, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. And when God says I've sworn by myself, there's no one higher that he can swear to. There's no one higher that he can take an oath on. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. Let all of the work, he says, let all the work, I'm sorry, let all the world look to me for salvation. Because I'm God. There's no other. He said, I've sworn by my name, my own name. And again, like I said, there's no higher name to to, to take an oath to. He said, I've spoken the truth. And I'll never go back on my word, God says. He says, and every knee is going to bend to me and every tongue is going to confess they're loyal to me. And here's the thing, every time that Isaiah or anyone else, anybody else in God's word, any other prophet, every time Isaiah opens a bright future hope for Israel, it's open for all men. It's for all of us. Salvation is for all nations. It's for all men everywhere, not just for the Israelites. And many times it seems as though Israel had had an inside track on salvation, like they were just the only ones privy to salvation. But God makes it clear that his people include all of those who follow him. But you see, Israel was to... Israel was chosen to be the ones or the way that the whole world would come to know him. They were to witness of of God. They were to be a light to the other nations of Jehovah God. Now Jesus the Messiah fulfilled Israel's role. What they didn't do, Jesus Christ has done. And he's given all the people a chance to follow him. Verses 24 through 25 as we close. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him shall come, I'm sorry, to him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So God says the people are going to declare the Lord is the source of all of my righteousness and strength. And all who are angry with him, They're going to come and they're going to be ashamed. And in the Lord, all the generations of Israel will be justified and in Him they will boast. See, the problem with our idols, he said in verse 20, is that they're totally useless. There's no life in them. There's no salvation of any kind that they can offer. There's no hope at all 
except in God alone. See, our part is to turn away from our worthless idols, whatever they might be, whoever they might be, and to turn to the living God. And if we'll do that, we can't help but experience salvation because God can't fail to be God to us. And the whole point of creation and the whole point of history is for God to glorify himself by saving us. And your salvation, my salvation, is not about you or me. It's about God. It's not about what I have done. It's about what he has done. He's both mysterious and faithful because he's God. And we should and need to accept that. And not be angry with God because of what he does. He's glorifying himself by being God, by by being himself. You see, by being God is how we're saved. And he's our salvation if we want him. But you see, if you hold on to your anger and to your hurt and to your feelings and to your broken expectations and your shattered dreams and and you're angry and you insist on sulking and having things your own way, one day you will bow unwillingly to him and be lost eternally. And it won't be God's fault. It will be our own. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word. And God, as always, your word is not just for information, but transformation, God. May it change us, Lord. May it help us to become mature. May it help us to to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, God. That we become more and more like him. That I would decrease, that he might increase. That I would give up my kingdom that his kingdom would come. And so, Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word. We thank you for your spirit who teaches us, who leads us and guides us into all truth, Lord. Father, may you be with us now as we go our separate ways, God. May you protect and watch over your people. And we thank you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple announcements and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. Uh, you need, if you need prayer, there will be folks up front to, to pray with you. So again, if that's your need this evening, uh, we'll be available for that. Again, uh, the first uh, women's Bible study meets tomorrow, all right, at 7 p.m. And the title is, Who is the Holy Spirit? It's the uh, introduction, uh, again, to the women's series uh, on the Holy Spirit. Uh, also, the men's Bible study uh, starts January 22nd at 9 a.m., that's a Saturday. Uh, it's lessons in the life of King Saul. Don't lose your crown is the title. Again, uh, it's about God's leaders. And then uh, the children's ministry meeting. Uh, it's scheduled for January 30th in the sanctuary here after the second service. And it's for those who are serving in the children's ministry and for those who may feel that they're being led to help out in the children's ministry as well. Also, um, uh, Mike Lyons' father, uh, Ken Lyons, uh, his funeral service will be here this Saturday at noon uh, here in the sanctuary. So again, you know, keep those things up in prayer and that God will use these ministries and that God would bless uh, the funeral service, especially for those that, that, that don't know the Lord that will be in attendance. And then Sunday morning, we will be back in Acts chapter 22. 
Uh, Paul will give his testimony, if you remember in chapter 21. The chapter ended with the words, and Paul was saying, and it was cut off there, bad place for a chapter break. But he left, leaves off saying, now when we pick up in verse 22, it goes on to what Paul was going to say. And what he's doing, he's giving his testimony, you know, of how we got saved. So it's a really, it's a great chapter. And it's, again, a great example of, of you know, Paul giving his testimony and, and how simple it is because... You know, he didn't give them a Bible study. He didn't give them some theological, you know, um, teaching. He just said, hey, this is how I got saved. And this is how God changed my life. So simple and yet a great lesson. May you guys be safe. God bless you.